My name is Andrew Gamison, and it is my privilege, as always, to be your host for the Speaking for Him podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I hope that you will find something in this episode which will encourage you on this journey that we call the Christian life. That really is my goal as I put out these podcasts each week, and I greatly enjoy being able to do it. The Lord has been so good to me in allowing me to use broadcasting as a medium to bless his followers, and I'm so thankful. If this is your first time here, please feel free to let me know what you think about the episode and share it with your family and friends if you feel so led. I would issue the same request to those who are longtime listeners, and I welcome everyone here, no matter which is your case. Well, today we are continuing through our series of Myth versus Truths, Myths About Jesus. And I think it's so important for us to have discussions like this because never has the deity of Christ and the surety of the Bible been attacked more than it is today. So we need to be assured of what we believe And we need to make sure that we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me be very clear at the top of this episode. My premise when I dig into the Bible to have a discussion about an important topic is that the Bible is the inerrant and complete word of God. That means I believe the word of God for what it says and I believe that it's true, and I believe that it can benefit every area of our lives. So with that being said, let's dig into today's myth, which is Jesus was not judgmental. This is a popular myth that the world has about Jesus, because often when we as the church are presenting a spiritual truth, they will counter with, You should not judge because Jesus did not judge. So we're going to look at the scriptures today and ask ourselves, is that really true? Did Jesus really not judge? And so let's look first at our quote of the day. Our quote of the day comes from John chapter 1, and I really do believe that it's a good jumping off point. Because it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spoke, him that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And in this passage, we see that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That was Jesus becoming human, even though he was fully God. And he chose to do that by voluntarily entering the womb of Mary and being in her womb for nine months, being born of a woman, and then He was able to redeem us who are under the law after the fullness of time and how grateful we are for that. But I want to bring your attention to that last line 
that I read from this verse, and it says, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. This is so important because we need to have grace for one another. We need to pray and have grace for our unbelieving friends, but we need to make sure that we are sharing the truth. You see, it's easy to get one of these things out of balance. I would not be a good Christian if I had just grace. In other words, if I just said, you can live your life however you want, Jesus loves you and it doesn't matter how you live, that might be an example of overemphasizing grace. If I overemphasize truth, I might angrily spout forth scriptures and not try to meet people where they are and understand their background and what brought them into the lifestyle that they now lead. So we need both grace and truth as we reach out to others. So I have five different aspects here where we will see that Jesus, in fact, did judge. Now, I will point out here at the top of this discussion that there's a difference between judging and being judgmental. Because judgmental is that attitude that I just mentioned a few moments ago where I'm going to spout truth angrily and I'm just going to be mad at you for not agreeing and I'm going to twist your arm until I hopefully compel you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not our motivation. We are not recruiting more angry people. We are recruiting people because we know the love of God. And we also know the terror of God. Paul said, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. So again, it's about balance. But was Jesus judgmental? Did he judge? The reality is, yes, he did. So let's look at these examples from Scripture, shall we? The first one is that he judged the accusers of the woman caught in adultery. I want you to pay very close attention to this passage. It says, They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one beginning with the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are these thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And this is John 8, 4-11. Those of us who have grown up in the church, we are familiar with this story. This woman is dragged before Jesus, and he is reminded that according to Jewish law, this woman should die for her sins, the sin of adultery. But I want you to notice a couple key things. First of all, adultery takes two people. If this was truly the sin of adultery, the man should have been called to account as much 
as the woman. So why was there no man in this scenario? We don't know. We just know that the focus of these people was on the woman and they wanted to stone her for her sin. Again, the law said they could, but I think Jesus is looking at the hearts of the people here and they are not delivering her up out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of morals. They are delivering her up in a sense of holier than thou. And he knows that, which is why he says, let them without sin cast the first stone. And the reality is there's only one person in that whole crowd of people that had the right to cast the stone at this woman based on that criteria, and that was Jesus. And we see that Jesus writes on the ground and ignores the people's pleas of what to do about this situation. Jesus was very good at sensing the deception of those around him and wiggling out of it. He had divine wisdom, the ultimate of wisdom. We are told that if we need wisdom, we are to ask of God. And Jesus, being God himself, had a heaping dose of this wisdom. So he ignores them. He begins writing on the ground. And there are a couple intelligent speculations as to what he might have been writing. Some people think that he was writing actual sins that people in the crowd had committed. Others think he may have just been writing the Ten Commandments and challenging them with, have you followed each of the Ten Commandments? And if you have, then you can do this. But if you haven't, then you have no standing here to throw this stone. And so after they are convicted by this, they leave one by one from the eldest to the youngest. I think it's interesting that it has the ages here, um, and perhaps the eldest were slightly more convicted because they had more uh, sins to be forgiven from. I don't know. But it's interesting here, the, from the eldest to the youngest, they leave, and Jesus and the woman are the only ones standing here together. And then Jesus says, Who condemns you? And she says, No one, Lord. And then Jesus says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And I want you to realize that that is the key. He doesn't say, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and do whatever you want. He says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I was in a bookstore several years ago, and I picked up Bill Clinton's My Life, and I found the section where he talked about his adultery with Monica Lewinsky. And he talks about asking for forgiveness for this sin, and he cites this passage. But he conveniently leaves out the last line that Jesus says, which is, go and sin no more. He ends it with, neither do I condemn thee. See, Jesus isn't interested in just letting us off scot-free. He is saying, your penalty will be paid by me, but I'm calling you to something greater. He called that woman to a life above this sin 
through his power. He says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. So our first point is that he judged the accusers of the woman caught in adultery. And he says to the woman, go and sin no more. I forgive you. The next point that I want to make is that he gave judgment and mercy to the man at the pool of Bethesda. A lot of times when this passage is preached, the focus is on the beginning of the story where the man is laying helpless at the pool of Bethesda and he can't get to the water when it's stirred up and Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? And then heals the man and the man goes away and walks with his bed. But there's a really telling part in the end of this story that really points to an even greater significance for this story. This is something that became apparent to me as a young man, and I always think about miracles in this context, which is Jesus healed a lot of people from their physical ailments. And I believe he delighted to do that, but his greater purpose in healing was to bring about spiritual truth. Remember, when he healed the lame man, he said he did it to prove that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. In the case of this passage, we will see that he has an important message for the formerly lame man. Let's look at it together. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple, and saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. And that is John 5.11-14. Now, we need to be very careful when we are talking about this here and say that a lot of bad things happen to good people in the church through no direct sin of their own. Remember the man born blind? They were asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because it was a common belief in the Jewish culture that if someone had a physical illness or infirmity, that it was because of their sin. But Jesus says, No man sinned, neither this man or his parents, that he was born blind, but that the power of God may be made manifest in him. Now, the reality is that this man and his parents were imperfect sinners, so of course they did sin, but their sin did not directly contribute to the blindness. But in this particular case, Jesus says, Behold, thou art made whole, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. So we don't know what sin it was that Jesus was referring to. The specifics of the sin were not important. Jesus just says, you have been given a gift by being healed. Don't sin anymore so that you can stay whole, so that you can stay complete. Stay away from the sin that got you in this situation. So again, Jesus is making a judgment based on his knowledge of the situation. You see, we would not be able to 
rejoice if we were saved only in this life. If Jesus said, for this life, I save you. Because we would still experience physical death, and then life would be over. We would, we would not experience joy to have eternal life in this life, because this life is full of sin. There's an old children's book that says that these people drank this water and they live forever, and they see generation after generation of people die, and they alone are left. It was called Tuck Everlasting. It was actually one of my favorite books as a child. But the premise of that is you don't want to live an eternal life in an imperfect world because people are dying around you. So again, the reason that we need to trust Christ is because then we can embrace eternal life knowing that when this life is over, when this temporal life is over, when this disease-ridden life is over, when this pain-filled life is over, we can experience eternal life devoid of pain and sickness and sorrow. But it's only through dealing with our sin that we can do that. So our second point is that he gave judgment and mercy to the man at the pool of Bethesda. This man thought that what he needed was to be healed physically, but he learned quickly from Jesus that his greatest need was to be healed spiritually. Then we see that he refrained from healing because of a lack of faith. Now, there's a lot of instances where we see Jesus healing people in the scriptures, and a lot of times it says that he healed everyone there. It doesn't say how many, it just says he healed everyone. So who knows how many that could actually be. It was probably in the hundreds, or possibly even thousands. He just healed a lot of people. But we read of an instance in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus does not heal a lot of people. He heals very few people. And it says this, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. So Jesus, in this instance, was able to heal a few people, but he could not heal large amounts of people because they lacked faith. They had unbelief. Now, obviously, we know the story of the man who said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. So we know that we will never have perfect belief. But something in Jesus knew that their unbelief was insurmountable for the healing that he wished to do. And I'm reminded of the passage where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. And he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how much would I rather gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Jesus told his disciples to not cast their pearls to swine. When they were sent out two by two, he said, if they don't accept you, Shake the dust off your feet and move on. So there were very clearly times when Jesus couldn't do as much work as he may have done in other areas. 
because of situations like that. And in Jesus' perfect wisdom, which we do not possess, we see these situations take place. So the third thing to know about Jesus' judgment is that he did refrain from healing because of a lack of faith in Mark chapter 6. The fourth thing I want to mention is that he judged the religious leaders for neglect. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus ye have made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. And Jesus is saying here that you say in your tradition that if you're giving to God, you don't have to take familiar responsibilities for caring for and honoring your parents. And Jesus is saying, you didn't get this from me. You did not get this from God. God says to honor your parents. God says to take care of your parents. So you are putting your tradition, your ideas of what is right above mine. And he would say in another passage, You profess to know me, but your hearts are far from me. See, Jesus isn't as concerned about our deeds as he is about our hearts. This next one, this fifth one, the last passage that I want to share with you regarding the judgment of Jesus is that he actually said, I've come to the world for this purpose. I mentioned earlier the man born blind, and in the end of the passage where he has just healed this blind man and he's dealing with some of the aftermath of this issue, talking to the religious leaders about what real sight and real blindness is, spiritually speaking, he says this, And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And that's John 9.39. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Pharisees and the religious leaders thought that they saw pretty well. They studied the word of God, and they thought they knew it pretty well, and they thought they were doing pretty, pretty good for themselves. As a matter of fact, they say to the man born blind, Aren't you a sinner, and are you trying to teach us? I always chuckle a little bit at that verse because the reality is every single person in that synagogue was a sinner because the only one who wasn't a sinner was Jesus. So the fact that they considered this man a sinner and put themselves above him as not being sinners, that meant that they were the ones who saw or rather thought they saw and were blind. And this man who was blind was one who could not see, but then Jesus helped him see, not only on a physical level, but also on a spiritual level, because after he heals his physical eyesight, he hears that the man has been cast out of the synagogue. He goes to him, he says, Do you believe on the only Son of God? And the blind man says, Tell me who he is that I may believe on him and Jesus said I who speak to you am he 
and he fell down and worshipped Jesus. And Jesus doesn't pull him to his feet and say, don't worship me. He accepts the worship. So next time someone tells you that Jesus wasn't judgmental, remind them that the very reason that he came into the world was to judge the world. Yes, he gives us hope in the midst of the judgment because he judges the world and then he pays the penalty for that judgment. He says, we are sold under sin. He says, we have no hope. We are told that while we are yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He had to die for us because we did not have the strength to save ourselves. He was our only hope, but he was glad to be that hope. And then finally, I want to end on a hopeful note here. This is a rather lengthy passage, but I think that it's uh, worth sharing. Jesus gives us hope, and we can be thankful for his mercy. Jesus gives us hope, and we can be thankful for his mercy. And actually, I have two passages here. The first one comes from Ephesians 2, 12-14, where he says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, which hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And that is Ephesians two, twelve to 14 And it's talking about how Jesus died for us all. Paul is writing to the Gentile church at Ephesus, and he's saying there was a wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. There no longer is, because Jesus is our peace. And the second passage that I have for you is from Romans chapter 7, and this is a lengthy passage because it's 18 to 25, but I didn't know how to cut it down, so here we go. Paul says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So in this passage, we see Paul talking about the struggle of the Christian life. He says, there's nothing in my flesh that's good. And he wants to do good, but he can't do it himself. 
Remember, we already talked about how in Romans it says, well, we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what Paul has said in Romans chapter 5. And now in Romans chapter 7, he is illustrating that for us practically. And then he says, for the good that I would do, I don't do it. And the evil that I do would not do, that I do. It is easy to sin. It is harder to do what's right. And Paul gets down to the end of this passage and he gets to the crux of the whole matter and he says, what am I supposed to do with this? Because I can't do it on my own. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So Paul is saying this is an ongoing struggle. If he gives into the flesh, he will serve sin. If he surrenders to the Spirit, he will serve God. And God gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to do what is right. So even in the midst of all this judgment that Jesus has done, we can have hope because we embrace the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Incidentally, this is why the virgin birth is so important, because sin is passed on through the seed of man. If Jesus just had an earthly father, he would have been a sinner. But because Jesus came from God, and that Mary was indwelt by the power of the Holy Ghost, he came into the world with no sin and he died with no sin, and he was buried with no sin, and he rose again with no sin. Now, of course, the, the flip side of that is that he, he did take on our sin when he died in a way that we cannot comprehend because he became sin for us on the cross. But the reality is that as far as his own sin went, He was born with no sin, and his risen self had no sin. He never sinned. It says in the epistles that Peter wrote that Jesus was without sin and that there was no guile found in his mouth. He had never been deceptive. He had never had a wrong thought. He had never had a wrong deed. He was perfect, and that's the only way that he could pay for our sin. So let's review these five aspects of Jesus' judgment very quickly. First of all, he judged the accusers of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus did not hesitate to judge because he loved. He showed through his judgment that he did love. He could have condemned the woman caught in adultery to stoning, and yet he chose not to out of love. Then our next point was that he gave judgment and mercy to the man at the pool of Bethesda. He gave this man mercy, he helped him walk, but then he reminded him that it was sin that got him into that place in the first place, and he urged him to avoid that sin. He doesn't tell us the details of it, it's not important, But he just says, avoid that so that you will not have a worse 
fate come upon you. As if maybe he was saying, the last time you did it, you were injured to the point of paralysis. Maybe next time you will die. But Jesus, his whole purpose for judging sin is to show us his mercy. The next point that we had was that he refrained from healing because of a lack of faith in the region. We don't like to think that Jesus would do this, but it is a reality that Jesus had a time when he couldn't do the works that he would have done if they had greater faith. Then he judged the religious leaders for neglect. He said, your responsibilities to me are important, but so are your responsibilities to your family. And denying your family in my name is not something that I would ask you to do. And then we saw that he came into the world for judgment, that it was the very purpose of his life. And then we ended by talking about how we can be thankful for his mercy. So I hope that this podcast episode has given you a lot to consider. I hope that you will go back and listen to all of the episodes in this series about the myths of Jesus so that when your friends bring up something in conversation about who they think Jesus is, you can point them to the Jesus of the Bible. That's about all I have time to share today, but I hope that you will be blessed this week. I hope that you will love others and share Jesus by the way that you live your life and also by your words. For now, I will simply say, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.